a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Good morning. We're into the 17th study into the letter to the Hebrews, also known as the book of Hebrews, 12th chapter, 17th lesson for us, but 12th chapter, we're doing verses 1 to 17. This is run with endurance. Now, just quick reminder, refresher. We just went through this gigantic list. We did it for two weeks, but it was one, one chapter, one section inside of this that just goes nice and flowing of basically the heroes of faith, right? Reasons why being faithful and continuing and and examples of their ancestry of faith, saying, hey, look at all of this. These people made it through and and you've already gone through a bunch, right? Remember in chapter 10, you've already gone through a bunch after you were enlightened, after you recognized that Jesus was actually the Messiah and you went onward with that. You endured a bunch, why would you turn back now? Let's look at these gigantic examples of faith. And then right after that, there is a, a shift in the letter into a call of endurance, okay? So he's he's trying to lift up, lift up the readers of this, the, the Hebrews who are being written to in encouragement to continue to run this with endurance, all right, so let's let's do this. Let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17 in the English Standard Version. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated— then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, hey, one of these these weeks, I'll actually get through a section without stumbling through it horrifically. (laughs) But until then, but until then. Well, this breaks down into three primary sections. First of all, we're going to see in in the first two verses, verses 1 to 2, to run with endurance. 3 to 11, endure fatherly discipline. And then 12 to 17, endurance through community. Well, let's take a look at this. Let's do it. Let's just start with verse 1. It's a a big verse. Let's do it. Therefore, okay, pause. As you know, whenever we see a therefore, we want to stop and look and see what it's there for. Therefore, the precedence of their struggle has been acknowledged. We saw this in Hebrews 10. So we just saw this in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So it's already been acknowledged that they've been going through struggles, that they've had these struggles, right? So the precedence of that has been set. The author has already set the stage for that, acknowledging this. I know you've gone through this stuff, right? Here it is. I'm acknowledging it up front. And then there, right after that, there was a lengthy list of the heroes of faith, okay? This gigantic list of people that were great examples who were waiting for the Messiah, did not get to see the Messiah in their lifetime. That was chapter 11. We just finished it. We spent two weeks on this giant list. So go ahead and and check that out. If you've missed it, it's the last two weeks. So this is 17, so what, 15 and 16. Lessons 15 and 16, go through that. Okay, so there's that gigantic list. Now, therefore, okay, you you have struggled. And there's this huge list of people that we should be following in faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This this section is is actually one of the reasons why so many people think that this letter is written by Paul. Because Paul loves to use sports analogies. And right here, you're seeing this. Our faith is put into play and is presented as a sports analogy. Running the race. This is a a race that we're running. You know, first to the finish line kind of thing. Ah, they beat me... Beat me to Jesus. Well, okay. Well, there's that. Okay. But let's stop for a second because there's actually a lot 
There is a lot of theology crammed into this one verse. So let's let's look. We already saw that therefore the precedence has been set. There's this giant list of giant list of heroes of faith that, that we're following and that we can great get example from and be encouraged by. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That is such a weird phrase. Why would we say we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses? Is is this is is the author pointing out and saying, "Hey, you're being watched by the world around you." And so you need to make sure you're you're minding your P's and Q's and you look nice and Christian for the people around you? I don't think so. In fact, in the Greek, the way this is presented and that it's formulated and put together out there, this actually is an indication that he's talking about those who have come before. The entire list and greater than the list that we went through through all of chapter 11. The great cloud of witnesses is actually not those who are going to be witnessing and testifying good or bad on our against us or towards us. It's witnesses that are testifying about Jesus to us that have lived in faith in the past. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's a legal term. This this term witnesses here is a legal term. Martrion is sounds almost Italian when I say it, but that's fine. You guys know I don't speak Greek well. So anyway, it means witness or to witness and witnesses. It, it literally does mean witnesses, but it is a legal term. It is a witness to an act or an action. It is somebody who is testifying and presenting a case or testifying to support a case. Okay, This is an indication of their faith. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He's bringing back everyone that he just talked about. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. You start going down the list. We have this gigantic cloud of faith. Okay, this cloud of witnesses. These people are sharing their faith that we can hold on to, to move forward. And that's what he's saying. We are surrounded by so many faithful that we can get encouraged from, that we can see their faith and look at their testimony as to why they moved forward and be encouraged by that. Okay, there's that huge long list. Yes, you've suffered, Chapter end of chapter 10. Yes, you struggled, you suffered, it sucked, it's bad. Here's this huge list of faithful that came before us. And since we have this gigantic list of people that we can look to as encouragement because of all the things they went through and their faith, and knowing it wasn't always just hunky-dory, but that it wasn't always just bad either, right? We have a good compilation of faith that we can look at and see. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that that those examples of faith, their testimony should give us encouragement. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. Now, what, what would these weights be? And what would the sin be? Well, he's already been discussing apostasy because the Hebrews that he's writing to are, are saying, we want to leave. You know, we're going back. We're going back to Judaism. We're not going to stick with Jesus. We're going back to the old ways. Well, why? What is the weight? What is the burden? What, shame? Because people look at you differently because you left 
because you, quote, left, when it's not really leaving, it's actually just progressing. You recognize that the Messiah came, and so you move forward? Is it what? Public humiliation, you've gone through it, they went through it. You know, you start getting all of this stuff. So let's lay aside every weight. Whatever's holding you down. And I love this because he's using this, this terminology here, talking about this as a as a race. What are some what what are things you do not want in a race? You don't want things that slow you down. You don't want things that weigh you down. When people are training for marathons and training to run and doing this, a lot of times they'll put weights on their back. They'll load up a backpack with rocks or weights or books or whatever you have, and they'll go for the run. I clearly am not one of these people, but they will go and they will do this. And they'll train for the run. But then when it's time to do the run, they take the weights off. They purposefully make it harder on themselves to build up the muscles. So what he's saying is, We're not training for a race. We're doing a race. We need to let go of whatever is weighing us down. But then he ties it also to sin. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin. It's not just things that we're doing to try to think if we can can build ourselves up, but that's actually holding us back. It's making it harder for us to build us up. If we're doing that to ourselves, we need to set that aside. Whatever we're doing that we're stuck in the world that maybe isn't a sin, but that is holding us down and slowing us down. And we're thinking, well, it's not there. Don't get me wrong. There are things in life that are not sin, but aren't great. And they're also not holding you back. You kind of have to know yourself on that one. Okay. This is something to where you got to, you got to weigh yourself. If you're not sure, maybe ask people, talk to people that you trust. Seek wise counsel. It's a great thing. You know, talk to people. Find out, hey, do you struggle with this? Go through it. What he's talking about is the things that do weigh you down, things that are holding you back, and sin, which clings so closely. There are things in our life that we are naturally prone to that go against the will of God. And he's saying, set that aside too. Don't just set aside the things that that are easy to set aside. Set aside this other stuff, the sin, okay? Anything that's holding you back, anything that's holding you down, the, the Greek here inside of this, it actually does translate and mean things that cling closely. It's kind of like running through a bog, right? Running through a swamp or a bog and it's really muddy. You know how that stuff just kind of clings to you and it really slows you down. Or if you're, it's, it's, we're coming close to winter and it, we're having massive snowstorms throughout Idaho. If you're trudging through several inches or feet of snow and you know you just it gets slow and it it starts sticking to you and it's really hard to move your legs that's the sort of stuff it's talking about it's like it's clinging closely to it's grabbing onto you and holding on tight because the sin grabs onto you just as much as you grab onto the sin and so when you're trying to let it go it's like having a little kid who's wrapped themselves around your leg and you're like, nope, get off. And they're still there and you can't shake your leg off. Trying to think there's several movies with that analogy where they're just stuck on your foot and you're (laughs) moving it and kicking it. You can't see it because the camera's only at my face, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about. And and that's, that's kind of what it's talking about is that sin grabs onto you. It clings closely to you. Sometimes the things that are weighing us down do the same thing. But the sin and all of this, it clings very closely, but it can also translate as ambush or to encircle. 
because it's waiting for you. Okay, this, this almost gives an imagery of sin itself having a personality. Well, if sin is clinging to you, if it's not just you who's searching for sin, but sin who's searching for you, that's why we a lot of times you'll hear people say, the enemy's out to get you. You know, they're talking, they're whispering in your ears, things like that. And sometimes they do. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not one of these people who sits here and says, that supernatural stuff doesn't happen. No, it happens. It happens. But it's encircling you, and it's ready to ambush you, and it's ready to make it harder for you. So you need to be running at full capacity. Now, it also says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so the author is is setting up this great point. See, I've already talked about, yes, you've struggled, you've suffered. We've got this great list of people that we can look to as encouragements for faith. Think of Abraham and Sarah, who, poor child, well after their age and, and after she was already known as being barren. You start going down the list. Moses killed a man, ran away in fear for his life, and yet God used him to deliver or worked through him to deliver all of Israel out of Egypt and then move through the wilderness and deliver the Ten Commandments. And you just start going through the list. And it's an amazing list. It says, hey, they were all waiting for the Savior. They were all keeping their eyes focused and forward on God and on Jesus and even pointed back to all of the similarities of how it was showing kind of this Messiah characteristic, pointing towards that, pointing towards Jesus. So I says, run, get rid of the, all the stuff that's weighing you down. Get rid of it. Just stop. Stop. Stop letting yourself be weighed down, including the sin. Just let it go. Go away from it. Run and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Now, this is an emphasis here, kind of emphasizes what he saw in 1036. For you have need of endurance. See endurance again. You need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Okay, you're promised things. Look forward to what is promised from God and run that race of, of endurance and with endurance to get to the end. This is enhancing that imagery of the race. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I love how we point some of this out because some of these things start looking at what's going on, who he's talking to, what they've been discussing, other than the apostasy side, right? Don't don't leave. Well, okay, so don't leave. What, should we look forward to shame and humiliation? Should we look forward to the bad stuff? Like what's, what's going on here now, right? How far the other direction do we go? Does the pendulum just swing hard to the left now? And he says, no, look to Jesus. Look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Not only the founder and the perfecter, but the person of our faith. Look towards God. Look towards Jesus. Jesus did it perfectly because he was all God and all man in one. He was 100% man and 100% God. I know that math doesn't work, but it's true. It's what he was. He wasn't 50% man, 50% God. That's, I think, mathematically how we would have to assign it. But he was completely man. We say 100% man because he truly was. Like as a person, as, as an entity, Jesus himself, he was purely man, and yet he was also completely God. 
he was God in the flesh. And so he is part of the image of our faith. He's the founder of it. We see in in John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And through the word, all things were made that were made. Okay, so we get this idea that Jesus created. He is the image of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. And he is the perfecter of our faith. And that he lived that perfect life. He went through all of the stuff. He was tempted in the desert. He was humiliated by the Jews, or at least they tried. They kept trying to humiliate him, but ended up by the Romans. And then the Jews then turned him over. And at that point was humiliated. So you start looking at this. He says, hey, look to Jesus for the joy that was set before him, meaning eternity with God, meaning correcting the wrongs, setting straight and putting things back on more of a balance and setting things in motion to finalize the balance to get things back to God's original design, to bring mankind back to God, the creator, looking for joy, at joy from what was set before him, he endured the cross. He's not saying Jesus was joyful about the cross. No, we have multiple pieces of evidence. Go through, go through the gospel accounts. Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus is the perfecter. And this brings thought back to Hebrews 11.40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Again, wrapping up that list. Okay, talking about that list of people. Jesus is the perfecter of it. These people were waiting in faith for the Messiah, and the Messiah came, and he is the perfecter, and that perfecter is Jesus. Now, Jesus set the pace of the race, meaning faith, He was focused on the Father's will for joy of God's will, knowing and trusting in him and trusting in his plan. He endured the cross, not enjoying the shame, but focusing on the joy in the end. And he is now, which rolls back into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Uh, three towards the end of it, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He brings that back in again. He is again, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, bringing back to how important Jesus is. He's trying to go full circle here, right? He's reiterating his point. There's There's a part of I don't want us to say storytelling, but making a point and in communication. And when you, when you go and you present things, you have to say things like three or four times before it usually sinks into people. It's usually not the one line. A lot of times people think, oh, there's a one line that you just said. And sometimes it is. But usually that one line was actually said three or four times in different ways. But one time it was said in such a way that it made such an impact that you remembered that. And so when we do communications, oftentimes we're going to repeat ourselves three or four times. It drives Sunny nuts because anytime I preach and she pays attention to it, she's like, because she knows I'm going to ask, how was it? And it was fine. Um, okay. And she'll just, I don't know, you repeated certain points several times. And I'm like, yeah, because you have to. <laughs> that's that's, that's part, of, part of communication, part of public communication. So he's repeating this point, but 
we're going to get a little bit more into this, but Jesus, I just want to point out to this. He despised the shame. Jesus was not enjoying the shame. Jesus was not going out at this. Jesus, by the way, I, I don't know how else you could say, you know, to say this. Jesus kind of was a martyr, right? He died for his faith. He was the Messiah. He was supposed to, but he died for his beliefs and for his faith. He died for the Father. Now, he resurrected, and so we don't, I, I don't know that I've ever actually heard someone say Jesus was a martyr, but in, in kind of a practical sense, you could kind of say that, yeah, okay, Jesus kind of was. Well, but he despised the shame. He wasn't looking forward to the cross. People will say, hey, don't, don't look for being, coming from like a missionary standpoint, can't tell you how many times I've heard this, don't look to be a martyr. Oh, believe me, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I want to get home to Jesus too, but I'm, I'm not in that kind of a rush, right? If he calls me today, great, but I'm not out into the rush to do a suicide by cop or a suicide by beheading or whatever. You know, that's, that's not the goal. That's not the point. Jesus wasn't either. Jesus wasn't either. Read the gospel accounts. Jesus was not in a rush for this to happen. And he despised despised the shame. He despised the shame, as he's saying here. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. You can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Three to four. Consider him. Who's him? Well, him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Oh, Jesus, okay. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the author's starting to clear things up just a little bit, okay? Still focusing on Jesus, but consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners, the Romans, who were there, endured from sinners, and even maybe the religious leaders who were trying to have him killed and did end up having him killed. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him, right? That you're not going to grow weary and faint-hearted. Well, let's just take a look real fast. So let's take a look at Mark 15, 18 to 20. And let's just take a look and, and see kind of what, what stuff did Jesus go through? And this is just a really short snippet, but take a look at it. And they began to salute him. This is the guards who are beating Jesus and getting him ready for the cross. They began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews, mocking him. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Total mockery, but then also still a beating. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him 
and they led him out to crucify him. So they were beating him, torturing him, mocking him, spitting on him. It's pretty gross. I think you're, you're getting beaten, you're getting bruised, most likely you're already bleeding, and you're getting people to spit on that. That's, that's gross. Jesus endured more than that, right? The author is pointing out that the perfecter, Jesus, the perfecter of faith, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, and the person of our faith, Jesus, endured such hostility, horrible, horrible hostility. He endured even more. He did endure more than anything that we're enduring. Anything that you've endured or you're going to endure, Jesus had endured it also. Now, that, that, that phrase always bothers me. Anything that you've ever gone through, Jesus, Jesus has dealt with. Man, I think to these people who are struggling with online addictions, whether it's gambling, pornography, or any, any of the such, it's one of those things that's like, but it was, it's different. And the point isn't that Jesus went through it the same way. Jesus endured the struggles the same way. The point is Jesus endured temptation. Jesus went through temptation. He went through mockings. He went through beatings. I think it's pretty clear. Nobody goes through anything exactly the same. You can get an identical set of twins born at basically the same time from the same parents, live in the same house, eat the same food, go to the same school, do the same things, enjoy the same hobbies, but they're still different. And how they've experienced life and have gone through things is still different. Okay, so you're never going to have two people who go through it exactly the same. So that argument of, but he didn't have to go through it like this, is kind of a moot point, right? No one goes through it exactly like this, except you. You, None of you have gone through things exactly like I have. That's fine. It's a moot point. And the author is trying to clear that up. Okay, It doesn't matter that it's not exactly the same. Jesus went through struggles. He went through beatings. He went through... You're right. Jesus hasn't dealt with exactly the same way of the struggle that you have. Would you like to deal with it the exact same way that he had to? All of your friends, your confidants, your people who you're training up for leadership to replace you can't even stay awake and watch and pray with you as, you're, as you know you're about to head to your death for them? Do you want them to deny you when being questioned? No, we didn't know anything about this guy. Do you want to be beaten and mocked by soldiers and then have to carry the instrument of your death? Do you want to be nailed to a cross? And I mean, you just think about these things, right? I I I definitely don't want to be whipped with a cat of nine tail that has shards of glass and rocks and and nails and things in it meant to grab onto your flesh and then ripped out. I don't want to go through that. No. You're right. Jesus hasn't gone through it, didn't go through it exactly exactly like you do. The point is he did go through it. And you haven't gone through things exactly like Jesus went through to endure for you. That's the point. Okay, and that's a double-edged sword. That argument is a double-edged sword. He's saying you're not alone in your suffering. So keep that in mind as to not grow weary and lose heart. That faint hearted can actually mean lose heart, like lose your faith. Don't lose your faith. Again, pointing towards that apostasy. Don't lose that. It says in, in your struggle, in your struggle against sin, the sin, what is the sin? Like you're just your regular sin? No, it's again, 
apostasy, your, your sin of wanting to leave the faith. Okay, again, going back towards apostasy. It's a major point throughout Hebrews. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Kind of one of those snarky ways today we'd say, but did you die? You know, you haven't gone through it like Jesus did. Jesus struggled all this way, but did you die? Right? He's, he's again, making that whole point like we just went through. That, that argument of Jesus didn't, didn't go through it just like we did. You, you don't know how hard it is. That point is moot. Yes, it's hard. It's difficult. But did you go through the things that Jesus went through? Right? Just kind of putting a stop to that before the argument even starts. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And again, this isn't a point of regular, everyday, occurrence sin. This is apostasy. This is leaving the faith. Five and six. And have you forgotten the exhortation, meaning the uplifting, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the author doubles down, asking if they have also forgotten that, that they were encouraged throughout the scriptures being called sons. Have you forgotten about that encouragement that you received? You've been called sons of God. Sons and yes, thus sons and daughters, but still that's the point, which this is actually pulled from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So he said, yeah, did you forget about this? And then he continues on seven to eight. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, discipline here is a Greek word that I'm not even going to try. It does mean discipline, but it also means training. See, we, we have a tendency in our culture when we think discipline. And I, I think it's used as an argument like, don't spank your child. That's horrible. No, it's, it's training. Like, that's it's how we train, right? Discipline means training. It doesn't mean discipline for discipline sake. It's not... I'm angry and I want to let my anger out on you. Okay, that's why we would say that's called abuse, right? If I'm angry and I just want to release my anger on you and, and you get into it, that's abuse. Discipline is training. It is trying to course correct. It is training for the betterment of the receiver of the discipline. And he goes through this a lot. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Ask my, ask Josh, ask my son. He, yeah, he, he, mm. I, it's different today than it was four or five years ago, but we still have some of the exact same struggles. His personality shines bright. <laughs> and so we're still trying to course correct on certain things. We do that with everybody. In fact, I'm still trying to course correct on certain things with my life, right? It just happens. It's a perpetual thing. We continue to do that. Just because it's perpetual doesn't mean we we don't worry about it. No. we want If we want to get from point A to point B, we still have to point ourselves towards point B. We can't just keep here swerving left and then well, I'll eventually come around full circle and then I'll veer back off. We have to course correct. When we get taken off course, we've got to point ourselves back in the right direction. 
That comes by asking God to help us. It comes by asking our friends to help us. It comes by all sorts of different ways. But we train our children that it's more important to stay focused and go the right direction than to just go veer off into the earthly pleasures and the thoughts and the delights of whatever you, well, whatever you want, whatever your heart desires. Please don't ever tell your children whatever your heart desires. That is a great way to ruin them forever. It's not, it's not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. And it's not a healthy thing to get whatever your heart desires. Anyway, moving on. Discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left, this he starts getting down and dirty here. Like this is almost a knock below the belt. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you're not alone in being disciplined, okay? All have participated. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons, meaning not sons and daughters of God. If God is not disciplining you, if he is not helping you course correct, if he is not training you up, let me put this another way. If you are not being sanctified and being changed by the Holy Spirit to look more and more like Jesus. Now, there's Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's three steps forward, one step back. But if the spirit is not working in your life and moving you forward, this is what he's saying. Okay, this is what the author's saying. If you are not being sanctified and brought up by the spirit, which oftentimes includes discipline and training, it's, hey, don't do that. Slap your wrist. Ah, don't do that. You know better than that. Who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. And if you start screwing up a little bit, ah, 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 oh yeah, you're right. You're right. And then we start moving in the right direction and we start doing better, right? Okay. So sometimes it includes that. If you are not going through this, I, I don't know what else to tell you. You're an illegitimate child of God. You're not really a child of God. That's what he's saying. If you're not going through these things, that should be an indication to you that you're not a child of God. I don't know how much more clear that point gets made, but think of this. This is a section where he's lifting people up. Why would you lift people up by telling them you're not a child of God? Again, go back to chapter 10 and verse 30 on. You've gone through all of these horrible things. You've struggled. You've gone through all this. Uh, Oh. So hard things in life are an indication that I am a child of God? They can be. I'm not saying everything, but they can be. God uses hardship, right? There's a It's a double-edged thing. It's a two parts to this. God's using things to train you and lift you up, and there's discipline inside of that, but there's also the enemy attacking. If bad things aren't happening to you, well, then there's uh, we can look at this both ways. If bad things aren't happening to you, the enemy's not attacking, for one. Why would the enemy attack somebody who's not their enemy? Mm-hmm. And if the God's not disciplining you and training you and bringing you up, then you're an Ill- illegitimate child. Either way, yeah. So yeah, I guess you could just flat out say if you're looking at if you're looking at life and you're not having some hardships and you're not doing stuff, that's uh, not a good sign. I'm not saying go out and look for the hardships. Thank God for the blessings when the blessings come because we all need seasons in our life and times in our life of reprieve where we can rest and recuperate to continue to go onward. You can't just constantly run. You have to have moments and times of rest. God knew this. He designed things and his initial example was with the Sabbath. There's a rest. In fact, rests more than the world lets you rest. 
He wants you to rest more often and do things more than the world likes to. So yeah, there's seasons of rest. It's not constant bad, 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 bad. There's a lot of times of joy and celebration. There's a lot of time of rest. But look at the constant flow. Look at the flow. Look at the flow of things. Moving on. 9 to 11. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Well, yeah, I, you know what, that's, that's true. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Pause for a second. Take a look. Matthew 7, 9 to 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him, which by the way, this is in red ink, which means Jesus was saying this. If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil, because you're not God, you're not perfectly holy. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But let's also look at Exodus 20, 12. It's actually pulling from the Ten Commandments, something that they're definitely going to know. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. So he says there, we've gone through this. Our fathers have disciplined us here on earth and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Father of spirits, kind of a, an, an interesting point to put out there. It, it draws into the mindset of a couple things. First of all, it pulls into Numbers 16.22, but not only does it do that, but it also pulls to the mind that God is the God of all creation. God is the God of everything. So even the supernatural, which which their understanding of sur- of the supernatural was much deeper than ours, and because they they lived in a way that they believed in that a whole lot more than than our society believes in it. And so the God of all of these spirits, you know, there's all these different spirits. God created everything, which means if those spirits are there, God's the originator. Like anything that can be had to have come originally, at least in in some form through God and God can continue to use. But it looks like Numbers 16, 22, and they fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? The God of the spirits. So again, pulling back from the Old Testament, pointing out to these, these pieces, God is the God of the spirits. God is the God of people. He's God of spirits. He is the father of the spirits. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best to them, but he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. Holiness here actually can be translated as sanctification, being sanctified. This this actually means that sanctification. We had that huge rant that I just went on a few minutes ago. Being sanctified. For he disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness that we may be set apart and be separate from the world and be more like Jesus, more like God in the way that he wants us and meant for us to be as his image bearers. 12 to 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Okay, continuing on with the race motif and the race theme. This is all a big theme, but continues on with the point and continues on with that theme. We we saw in verse one and verse 11, kind of going through with this. 
But anyway, verse one and verse 11, God is training us. Verse one, we are to put aside everything that is weighing us down and sin that's holding us back. So the author turns the discussion to the congregation. So we're seeing a shift here as we're going towards community, okay? We haven't seen that quite yet, but the drooping of the hands, strengthen your weak knees. In the Greek, there's actually one, one word that's being used for this, and it, it's, it can also make strengthen and to make straight for the drooping of hands and, and strengthen the weak knees. Okay, so it kind of links together with the making straight paths. But the author turns the discussion to the congregation or the family and to encourage the family. Drooping hands and weak knees sound very familiar to the readers. If we look at Isaiah 35, 3 to 6, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. That sounds very familiar. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Hmm, that sounds like something Jesus was doing. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. I vaguely remember that in the in the stories as well. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this is going to make a lot of sense to them. These this imagery of drooping hands, the weak hands, and the feeble knees or the weak knees, this imagery is going to strike a chord. They're going to see this correlation. This is something they're going to recognize. They make straight paths. Make for 13 and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Straight paths coming from Proverbs 4.26. He's linking another piece here. So much happening here. The amount of theology that's being being put together right here is astronomical. And ch- chances of, of somebody, uh, the readers to this and the hearers of this initially grasping all of the theology that was being thrown at them the first time, very unlikely because it's really, really deep and complex because he's linking multiple pieces here. He's linking prophecy through Isaiah in with Proverbs, the wisdom, right? Getting wisdom. Proverbs 4.26, ponder the path of your feet, then all of your ways will be sure. So he's linking these together. It's a huge amount of theology. Make this straight. Do this, do that. It must be clear. Now, 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 for a path to be straight enough to encourage healing, because look at what he's saying. Make straight paths for your feet. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Well, for a path to be straight enough to be something that we're, it's not going to incur more injury for somebody who's injured, but encourage healing, it's got to be level. Wow. Um, thanks for spamming live Bible studies. That's that's cool. Anyway, it's going to have to be level in the sense that it's not, it doesn't have major ups and downs. It can't be turning back and forth. It's got to be clear of debris, get all the rough spots out of it. You can't have the droopy spots in there. You can't have big pieces for you to catch your feet on. Okay, so it must be clear and level to prevent worsening injury. We look at Isaiah 40 verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. It must also be straight in direction to prevent veering off course because you want to lead the people who are running that or going on that path to the right direction. As we talked about before, you can't just veer off every time, every time and everything you want to do, 
right? We've got to be pointed in the right direction, which goes to Proverbs 4.27, which is just right after the other priest of the Proverbs, right? Just continuing on. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evils. Really? Come on, YouTube. I, I think we're going to turn off the chat feature with YouTube because that's not cool. Sorry, guys. All right. 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So strive for peace with everyone, not just those who are your fellow believers and your friends. and No, everyone. Let's look at Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Man, I'm getting, it's a fun day. Again, with the holiness, strive for peace and joy with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We kind of already discussed a part of that, right? You're you're being you're being sanctified. You're being changed. God wants to make you holy and and move you in that direction. And if you're not going through the discipline that's doing that, you're an illegitimate child. So you've got to strive for this holiness and and have God be doing this in your life if you're going to see God. But we can also you can also look at John 14, 6 to 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because he's saying, look, I, I and the father are one. We go through that. Yeah, exactly. Just spoke through warfare. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you got to love it. You got to love it. Don't follow that temptation, people. Don't follow that temptation. <laughs> ignore, ignore the YouTube spammers. <clears throat> ignore the YouTube spammers. It's horrible. All right, but holiness here. I, again, hagiamos, I believe is how it's pronounced. I'm not perfect at it, but it, it does mean sanctification and holiness. Again, kind of what we were discussing. It's a reference to being put back the point on verse eight about being a legitimate child of God versus an illegitimate child of God. 15 to 17, let's wrap this up. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral, YouTube, ugh, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author points to three specific things that all believers are to watch out for one another concerning. Now, the verbiage here, some of it could actually be pointing to like an overseer or a pastor, but the way this is, is phrased, it's actually something that's meant for everybody. It's not something that is meant for just the pastor. This is congregation-wide. This is Christendom-wide. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are needing to be watching out for this. So let's break this down really fast. First of all, we're saying that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's a direct claim and a great direct point to apostasy, right? Watch out for people falling away from the faith, apostasy, and that there no root of bitterness springs up. Well, what does that mean? Let's take a look. Again, this is something that they're going to recognize. We might not because we're so far pulled from this, but they're going to. Deuteronomy 29, 18. 
Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve other gods of those nations. It's a warning against apostasy directly. But it continues, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And if you continue it on, it says it poisons the rest of them. Don't let this bitter root spring up and hurt the rest, okay? Adds to apostasy, so it's doubling down. Don't just, just don't let someone just fall away. Careful, don't let apostasy happen. And don't let somebody who is falling away or who is going other directions seep those claws in and become a root of bitterness, a poisonous root that is infecting the rest of the congregation to take a bunch of people away. This is not a that are taking people from one church to the next church and church hopping. No, this is a direct call of faith. Salvation is important here. This is more important than, do they go to my church or do they go to that other church down the street? This is not a point to that. This is a point to, don't let them take you away from Jesus. And the enemy has gotten really good and really subtle about this. And there's certain things out there that claim to believe in, quote, Jesus, But if you look at the quote Jesus that they are referring to, it looks nothing like the actual biblical account of Jesus. So be careful with that. So direct apostasy and then dragging others with them towards that apostasy and going away, which could just be somebody who's a fake believer who claims to do something so that they can drag people over there like a, like, like a, 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 what are those salespeople called that are selling? Anyway, you know what I'm saying? That's, I, Hesitate. I shouldn't even say that because there's a lot of people inside the church who <laughs> sell stuff like that. Anyway, the third is that no one is immoral, sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. Now, the sexually immoral is kind of an interesting thing. We start going through Esau because Esau, he, he talks a lot about Esau. In fact, the rest of this is is Esau. So let's, let's look at this. But bear in mind when we're discussing the Esau section in here that, that the Jews— at that time, and now Christians today, and, and really Jews and Christians today, are to be different from the common. We're supposed to be different than the world around us. There's supposed to be separation. If we're holy, holy means set apart. It's different. We're not the same. It doesn't just mean like, oh, great, right? We all have an understanding. God is holy. God is so great. Well, okay, but God is set apart. He is different, He is different from the rest. So if we are being set apart, we are to be different from the rest. And the common, and I'm not saying that people are just common, but like the regular people, not just the the regular, regular people, including the super smart, those who are not following God. And this, this pulls all the way even back from Leviticus. We can look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, right? So there's supposed to be a separation. There's supposed to be some difference here. Now, Esau had two wives, hence the reference here to sexually immoral. There might have been others, other pieces in this in their stories that they were aware of, but if we go through biblical accounts, the main things that we can pull from is he had two wives. However, he had two wives who were Hittite wives who really gave problems to his parents. Genesis 26, 34 to 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, and the Hittite to be his wife. 
And Besameth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So they were doing bad things. So it wasn't just, I mean, sexually immoral. He had multiple wives. That's not, you know, they started to understand that's something that the rest of the world does. We shouldn't be doing this. So sexually immoral there, but then it also kind of doubles down with, and they made life really unpleasant. They were no longer honoring his mother and father. They were, they were causing issues, okay? And then the second point here, he sold his birthright for a meal, a single meal, because he lacked faith in God's promise. Now, the story that we get in this, I always chuckle when I read this because, like, this just doesn't even make sense. Like, clearly he thought it was a joke, how it's written, or there's, there's so much more to the story that I really wish it was included in this. And it just depends on your interpretation. Okay. But let's look at Genesis 25, 29 to 34. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Which again, to me, that screams, This is, he thought this was a joke, I guess. Jacob said, swear to me now. So we swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Like he didn't even care. And so then you get that part there and it's almost like, oh, did he think it was a joke or did he just not care? Like, I, it's so... I wish there was more to it, and it just depends. And there were different ways of interpreting then. There's different ways of interpreting now. Anyway, long and tall end of the story, he sold his birthright for a single meal. So he says, don't be sexually immoral like him. Not just taking multiple wives who are <laughs> displeased your parents, but don't be sexually immoral or unholy. And that might have just been an example of his sexual immorality. There was probably more. If he was 40 and then took wives, he might have been doing other stuff before that. It's a long time before 40. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's just go ahead and look at Genesis 27, 38 here, because honestly, the author wraps that up really well. So let's just look at that piece right here, 27 to 38. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Because he'd already blessed Jacob. Which, which, by the way, the author ignores here, but Jacob like did some full-on deceit to get this, even from, from Isaac. It was crazy. Read, read the story. But Genesis 27, 38, Esau said to his father, after he did this, because he came in with another meal himself, trying to get the blessing, and he's like, I already did. Who are you? I, I'm your son Esau. Oh, no, I already gave away the blessing. Ah. And you get in here, Genesis 38, Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even also, oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He sought it for, he couldn't repent. It was already done. It was already done and given away, which is another example of do not wait until the last second. You don't know when your last second is. Don't wait for it. Don't give away your inheritance, your godly inheritance, your heavenly inheritance, don't give that away for something as simple and as small as a meal or self-indulgence of whatever it was, of whatever it is for you. Don't give that away for a single thing. Look to the end. It's an encouragement there. 
Takeaway. We have a great cloud of witnesses testifying to us about the realities of God and the realities of Jesus and the hope of Jesus and the hope of God, hoping towards that and going forward in faith in that direction, testifying to us that we are on the narrow path leading to salvation. Stay the course. While there are and will continue to be times when even that doesn't make up for the hardship that life can throw at us, right? That, that realization that we have a lot of examples from the past and, and those examples today that we look at that we know and that we have known, our friends and family. Sometimes that's just not enough for, to, to cover and to make up for the hard times in life that we're going through. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remind yourself of the sacrifices that Jesus made for you, and that can help get you through. God uses things in our lives to shape us and to mold us more and more like Jesus. Jesus was the perfect example of humanity because he was both completely man and completely God. Do not view God's training as punishment, but as refinement. And finally, we were not meant to do this alone. We need community. Lift each other up. Encourage one another. Keep each other strong to endure the race to the end. The things of this world are not worth giving up God's grace and forgiveness and that holy call. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Thank you, God, for today and for your word. Thank you for everyone coming here and, and learning and growing together. God, I just ask that you you be with us and that you bless us as we continue on, that we we take these words of encouragement as encouragement and that we can move forward together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thank you guys so much. Thanks for putting up with me in my coughing fits. I hope you guys have a great rest of your weekend. We'll talk to you guys next time. Till then, God bless. Bye-bye.